23 and verse 1. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel, singer of songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when no one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire? But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with a hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. Amen. This is God's word for us this evening. Let's pray together for a moment. Loving God, as we have read your word, we pray now for your spirit to be at work illuminating that word uh, to us. Would you open our eyes and allow us to see the wonderful truths contained within, open our ears that we might hear and listen to you. Lord, may you um, allow our minds to work that we might process these words. And Lord, would you give us a will and a desire then to act them out in our lives and all, all for your glory and your honor and that alone. For we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. What we've just read are David's final words. Final words can actually be incredible things. Robert Bruce, King of Scotland in the 13th century, uttered these words just before he died. Now God be with you, my dear children. I have breakfasted with you, and I shall sup with my Lord Jesus Christ. Or the words of pastor, theologian Henry Ward Beecher, a wee bit closer to our time, as he uttered his last words, he says, now comes the mystery. Ah, what a wonderful way of thinking of that passing from death to life. What I quite like is Thomas Hogg, who was a Scottish Presbyterian minister. We might forgive him for being Presbyterian. And the 17th century, in a little town called Kiltern, up in Ross and Cromarty. And before he died, he charged his congregation that he be buried at the very door of the church, as close as you could get to the church door, and his stone his tombstone be placed right there at the entrance to the church with his epitaph written on it. This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern if they bring one ungodly minister in here. That's going in that door. No. <laughs> Those were, one might say, his last words in record, anticipating what may have come in the future. That's what we have in 2 Samuel 23, the opening seven verses. David's last words on record. Last words with eyes, not in the past, but on the future, though with more confidence and less foreboding than Thomas Hogg's last words. 
David's final words are a psalm. If you look carefully at your Bible, particularly if you've got a a newer Bible, you'll see that nearly all of chapter 22 and this first part of chapter 23 are indented. Uh, That usually means that we're talking about dealing with poetry. And what we have in chapters 23, 22, and the start of 23 are what we might call a couple of songs One is that song of deliverance in chapter 22, David's song of salvation that we thought on last week. And this uh, section here in chapter 23 is a psalm of great confidence and great assurance about what God is going to do in the future. They are his final words, though I probably should clarify, maybe his final words that he recited and wrote down. David's uh, last words, uh, David's life actually didn't come to an end until 1 Kings chapter 2, and we do find him actually uttering a couple of words of charge to Solomon at that stage. Here though, we have this incredible little psalm that I like to think of as David's final words. How do we know their final words? Uh, Just because your pastor tells you? Of course not. The text tells us your pastor's not that clever Verse 1, these are the last words of David. We have the psalm. Then we have a memorial to his fighting men, uh, the mighty men that God placed around David that he used to protect him and to fight for him. And then we finish with David yet again showing his human weakness. David yet again sinning against God, but a reminder of repentance and forgiveness and the grace of God as the book of Samuel finishes. These final words speak of leadership, I think, godly leadership. These books, after all, First uh, and Second Samuel, are about a people looking for a king. David begins by reminding us of the privileges of leadership. Given this is near the end of his life, these words may have been recorded especially uh, for Solomon, but they have much to say to you and to me uh, today. Leadership is a privilege. David never ceased to marvel that God would call him to become the king of Israel, to lead God's people, to fight God's battle, to help write parts of God's word, and even through his descendants to bring the Messiah into this world. It blew his mind every time he thought on God and how he would choose to use a man like him with all of his faults and especially with all of his failings. And I have to say, I can understand what David means. What a privilege to be called uh, by God to be an under-shepherd, to the great shepherd uh, of the sheep, to be a pastor of God's people, to serve God. What a privilege, given that I am such a great sinner all by myself, one with my faults, too many to mention. Although I'm sure if you ask Morag, she would tell you one of the two. Uh, But I'm guessing some of you have probably witnessed some of them over these last years as well. I am one who fails again and again. I am weak and I am frail, and yet God is so strong and so mighty and so kind and so gracious. Those he calls, he equips. Those he equips, he empowers. Those he empowers, he uh, excites for the task in front of them, and then he enables us to go and to serve him. What a privilege to serve God, what a privilege to preach his word. What a privilege to pray for his people. What a privilege and joy to pastorally care for those under my care. David was just lost in awe 
and wonder that God would have used him to have used him down through all of these years from looking after sheep to slaying that giant to setting up that kingdom. He doesn't focus on himself, but rather he focuses on God. This is the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of singers. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. David is described there as the son of Jesse. That reminds us of the fact that David didn't come from a powerful, from a priestly family. He was the son of Jesse, not the firstborn, you'll remember, uh, from Samuel's time when he went looking to anoint a king, but the, the youngest, the one who sat in the fields all day taking care of his father's sheep, singing a song or two, uh, practicing his harp, and uh, beating a few bears and lions along the way uh, as well, daydreaming perhaps out on the hillside. David remembered his beginning as a lowly shepherd from the tribe of Judah, the son of Jesse. It was a humble life, but one that David was not ashamed of, never ashamed of. From the human standpoint, David was a nobody, a shepherd, the youngest of eight sons from an ordinary Jewish family. Nevertheless, God selected him. He made him to be Israel's greatest king. The Lord gave him skillful hands. He gave him a heart of integrity. He equipped him to know and to do his will. He was exalted by the Most High, it says. That phrase reminds us that David's power, his prestige, his position, all of it came not because he exalted himself, but because God raised him up. The heights to which God raised him are indicated by the title that comes, the man anointed by the God of Jacob. David was the anointed king. Not just any king, he was God's king. Not just any God, but the one true God, the God of Jacob the covenant God of Abraham. David wasn't simply a ruler, though. He was a worshiper, Israel's singer of songs. God was not simply his sovereign. He was David's song. All you have to do is read the book of Psalms, almost half of which were written by David, to understand the depths of David's faith in and love for God. David was a tough leader with a tender heart after the Lord. And it's refreshing here to see, even in his old age, even after he has accomplished so much, David knows that he is where he is because of God. It is a great thing to know and to realize it is God who works in our lives, God who calls, God who equips, God who uses. David didn't promote himself to achieve greatness. It was the Lord who chose him and elevated him to the throne. The Lord spent 30 years training and preparing David, first with the sheep and the pastures, then with Saul in the army camp, and finally with his own fighting men in the wilderness. Great leaders are so often trained in private before they go to work in public. Go back through the scriptures. You'll see it again and again and again. Moses, Joshua, Nehemiah, even the apostles of our Lord. In fact, even our Lord Jesus himself, he grew up in obscurity. Yet all the time, growing in wisdom and stature of the Lord, Luke tells us. 
And it wasn't until he was 30 his public ministry began. So friends, my encouragement to all of us is to keep serving faithfully in the background. Keep learning of the Lord. Keep growing in him. He will use you where you are. He has a role for you right there, right now. And as we thought in our text at the start of this year from 2 Peter, we are to keep growing. David recognizes the Lord's call in his life and his work in his life as a privilege to serve him. Not only does David recognize that God is God who's called him, raised him, anointed him, but he recognizes his very words come from the Lord. Verse 2 The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. How humbling to speak the very words of God. How humbling to be a preacher of his word. The Spirit of the Lord spoke to David, inspiring him to proclaim divine messages. Since he is God, the Spirit is able to speak and direct as he chooses. And David understood this. So he knew that the words that came from him belonged to the Lord. The Psalms he penned weren't just products of his own imagination, but songs from God. And David wasn't the only one moved by the Spirit to proclaim the Lord's message. Peter spoke of something like that in 2 Peter 1 and 20. Like the others, he understood it was God's word and not his And this reminds us that the Scriptures are the very Word of God, so they should be read with great care. David is reminding himself of what God has done in his life. He is reminding himself that the privilege of leadership is actually the privilege of knowing God and loving God and serving God. What's God done in your life, my friend? He's brought you out of the mighty pit. He set your feet upon a rock. He's called you to himself. He's regenerated you. He's given you a name, a new name of Christian. He's adopted you into his household, into the family of God. You are children of God, heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. David is preparing for death, and he's reminding himself of the blessings, the extraordinary blessings that God has bestowed upon him. He's reminding himself of the privilege of knowing God and loving God and serving God. Friend, are you living in light of that great privilege? You don't need to be a preacher of God's word, a pastor of the people. You just need to know God and love God and serve God where you are. Are you aware of the blessings of the Lord in your life right now? And if you're in any doubt about some of those, go and read Ephesians later on. Because Ephesians 1 begins there by thanking God that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And in Paul, in one big, long sentence that covers about 12 or 14 verses there, I have recites those wonderful blessings. Are you aware of the blessings of God in your life? David recognizes that God speaks into his life, that God gives him the words to say and to share And so what follows here in verses 3 to 7 is God's word inspired and necessary, a word the people need to hear so they can live and serve God faithfully. And so this word speaks of the responsibilities of leadership, the privileges, but now the responsibilities. Verse 3, the God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, 
Oh, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. God didn't train David up just to pop him on display, but because he had an important role for him to do, and so is with every true leader. David was to rule over God's people to the sheep of his pasture, as he mentions in Psalm 100, verse 3, and that is an awesome responsibility. It demands character, integrity, a submissive attitude towards the Lord, someone serving with righteousness and in the fear of the Lord, someone who recognizes the Lord's faithful leading and promises, and someone who knows that the Lord judges with fire. And we'll just think of those as we go through and finish. David speaks of the fear of God in verses 3 and 4, the fear of God. The book of Samuel teaches us that the right kind of king is a king who rules justly, a king who rules righteously. But it also makes clear, just as David does here, that a king who rules justly or righteously is a king who rules in the fear of God. You see, the most critical temptation for every king, for every person in authority, is to forget that they too are under authority. If that happens, such a person becomes a law unto themselves. They're accountable to no one. And when that happens, what begins to rule the ruler are their sinful desires. And it happens in churches. I've seen it happen in too many churches in my experience. And that's why it's good to keep yourself accountable. That's why it's good to remember that actually you're not in charge. I'm not in charge. doesn't matter how many times you look to me to lead you forward. I'm not in charge. God is. Always God is. And if you're looking to me, you're looking to somebody who's going to fall and somebody who's going to fail and somebody who's going to muck it all up. We look to God and we follow his leading and his guiding. We live in the fear of God. I live in the fear of God. You know what drives me on as your pastor so often to try and lead well and wisely is that one day he's going to judge me twice as harshly because he's appointed me to lead. I am fearful of what he's going to say. I'm fearful that he's going to discover, he doesn't need to discover, he already knows all my mistakes, all my faults, all my failings, all the way that I haven't led you as well as I should have done. That's what drives me on, the fear of God, the fear of standing before my Lord and Maker. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and I'm looking forward to hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. But alongside that, I recognize that he's going to go, wish up. What on earth were you playing at sometimes? What on earth? Rulers are not the final authority. The Lord is. The fear of God will restrain them from terrible deeds, will guide them to correct decisions for the people. Rulers will be accountable to the Lord. They, they must do no wrong, nor allow it to be done. It is their responsibility to rule according to God's law, to be just. And as David knew from personal experience, when a king first bows humbly before the king of heaven, then he will find both the perspective and the provision to rule well. How well? Well, verse 4 indicates that this kind of king will cause his people and his kingdom to flourish just as the sun and the rain cause the earth to flourish. Isn't that a beautiful picture? To lead well, Samuel teaches that a king must first be led by God. 
Ponder that scene for a moment, the one that David poetically uh, writes about. It's an idyllic picture. It's a pasture scene of how beauty comes after a storm, of how when the rain comes, the grass seems to turn green uh, within five minutes, a bright green, an effervescent green. And David is using that picture, that picture language, to say that out of the chaos of the time in which he lives, God is going to produce a ruler upon whose shoulders will be the government who walks righteously and in fear of the Lord. And as well as looking at his own rule and reign, uh, the, uh, the rule and reign of any successor to uh, the throne, David's looking ahead to the promised Messiah, to the one who is the Prince of Peace. When perfect peace will come, when a world ravaged by storms of sin will be overcome, when the perfect Lamb of God will walk the earth, the only sinless one who will ultimately take our sin and deal with it once and for all. David sees the bright future. He sees the beautiful, peaceful garden. Friend, are you able to picture that scene? We'll come to it in a couple of months, matter of weeks, hopefully, in the scene of Revelation 21 and 22, a new city with a river of life running through it. That is our hope. Until then, we live on this broken earth, broken people living among broken people. But we look for leaders who will lead in the fear of God, people who serve under God's rule. Are you living in the fear of God? Are you following him, being led by him? Of course, a good leader also lives and serves knowing and looking to the faithfulness of God, to the faithfulness of God. To reinforce the fact that the king who first bows before the king of heaven, that that king will be blessed, David reminds his listeners of the covenant that God made with him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David planned to build a house for God, a temple in which God would dwell. God turned everything around and told David that he would himself build a house for David. And what kind of house? An enduring house, an enduring throne. Verse 5 here, is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part? Will he not bring to fruition my salvation? Grant me my every desire. At the end of his life, David is thinking about God's covenant. He's thinking about God's promise. David recognized the difficulties he faced in his personal life. He didn't plan on having all of those troubles within his home, within his family. Nobody ever does plan that, I don't think. If they do, they're maybe just a wee bit deranged uh, somewhere along uh, the line. Others would not have believed his family would fall apart in the manner that it did, but it did. David's only consolation was the Lord's word. He was grateful for the everlasting covenant that God made with him. It was promised that his family, that the nation would be established forever. This, of course, included the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was of the house of David, who would establish an everlasting kingdom. Knowing the Lord would keep his word, David's heart was consoled. His difficulties would not eliminate the promise because the covenant depended on God, not on men. One can never go wrong when they place their faith in God's word. 
David's just sung about that. The previous chapter, verse 31, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. This covenant is, as David describes it, an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant that is ordered in all things and secure. God has worked out every detail. God will work out every detail. Nothing left undone. Nothing that can derail God's agenda. That is the faithfulness of God. David is saying not only to the people of God, but also to the future kings over those people. He's saying rule in righteousness, walk in wisdom, judge justly, be humble, remember who put you on the throne and trust him. And if you do that, you'll be blessed. Just look at me. Remember my story, says David. Friends, remember the faithfulness of God. He has never left you. He's never forsaken you. He's led you beside the quiet waters. He's restored your soul. He's blessed you in so many ways. He's kept his promises to you. So one of the responsibilities of leadership is to recognize, to remember, and to recount the faithfulness of God. There's one final thing David wants to make sure we understand. One of the responsibilities of leaders and that is to live and to lead, recognizing the fire of God. Just look at verse 6. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. You see, not all are good. Not all will be saved. Evil will be punished. We began to think about that just a little bit this morning, didn't we? God will judge. Evil will be punished. David gets that, the fire of God. Notice the subject of verse 6. Evil men, worthless men, literally those of Belial, And this title is not new to Samuel if you've been working through with us. In fact, it's been used, I don't know who counts, probably none of you, but I count because I'm the pastor. I check these things out nine times. It's used through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. It started with Hannah, who didn't want Eli to think of her, to see her as a wicked, worthless woman, a daughter of Belial. It continued with Eli's own sons who were in fact wicked, worthless men. It worked through men like Shimei and even men like Sheba, a truly worthless man as it's recorded about him nine times. So as you can see, this title was an important part of what God is trying to teach us through these books. What is he teaching us about such people? That they are like thorns. Thorns which only hurt people. Thorns which can only be removed by force, ultimately by fire. And throughout these books, we've seen that that exact thing, God's fiery judgment, removes the wicked and the worthless. Eli's, uh, Eli and his sons judged, removed. Nabal judged, uh, removed. Saul judged, removed. Absalom judged, removed. And David knows that he could have been one of those men were it not for the very mercy of God. Weren't his sins with Bathsheba 
against Bathsheba, against Uriah, wicked and worthless acts. Of course they were. But unlike all those thorns I just mentioned, David turned back to God in conviction and remorse with humility, which points us back to the very first responsibility of leadership. The leader uh, who knows something of the fire of God knows something of the fear of God. And the leader who walks in the fear of God will know something of God's faithfulness. Quite simply, the right king for God's people was a king who understood the fear, the faithfulness, the fire of God. Isn't that the whole lesson that Samuel leads us? The whole, isn't that the lesson which the whole story of Samuel leads us to? The people are looking for a king, but they're always looking in the wrong direction. And David here remembers God's covenant. He anticipates God's king. Friends, in David's final words here, we are reminded of the call and enabling of God, the privileges of leadership. We've been reminded of the responsibility, uh, the responsibilities of leadership. They need to live and lead in the fear of God, knowing and pointing to the faithfulness of God while seeking to avoid the fire of God. Quite simply, David calls us to look to God to walk in his ways, to recognize that he is the rock of our salvation and that he keeps his promises, his eternal covenant. Is that our testimony? Is that our trust? Is that our hope? I pray that it is. Let's pray together, will we?